Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them, speak against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this and that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. This is the word of the Lord from James chapter 4, verses 11 through 17. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As I preach the word this morning, I want us to begin in the town of Whittier, Alaska, which is just on the west side of Prince William Sound. 200 residents or so live in Whittier, Alaska, and the vast majority of them all live in this one building. The entire town all lives together in this one building. So imagine that that every time you go home, Everybody you know is there. Your boss is there. Your employees are there. Your best friend might be there, and the person who drives you crazy the most might also be there. That annoying family on the ball field that the parents, you just can't stand the way they talk to their kids, they're there as well. Everyone in town lives with you all in one place. In this building, this town of Whittier, Alaska, inside the same building, you'll find their post office, their police station, a laundromat, a market, a convenience store, a clinic, and the local church meets in the basement. Now listen, I love you all, okay? I love you very much. I've been here for over seven years, and I've made lots of wonderful friends here in our church. I've traveled with some of you. I've spent more than a week with some of you outside of Tulsa. I've shared a room with some of you on our trips. I've made a lot of good friends, and many of you are in this room. But when I go home, though you're welcome to visit any time, when I go home, I would prefer that you not always be there, right? And let me just tell you the truth. You would prefer that about me. You you wouldn't want to live with me all the time. Just ask my kids, ask my family. The word they like to use for me is particular, okay? I'm, I'm particular about the way that I like things at home, And imagine what it would be like if everybody you went to church with and pretty much everyone you saw on a regular basis, you all lived in the same place. That's what it's like in Whittier, Alaska. The the reality is that wherever there are people, there's going to be conflict. And whenever there are people, wherever there are people gathered together, there are going to be some folks who get crossways with each other. 
I'm sure that happens often in Whittier, Alaska, and it happens in our communities still today. As we've been talking about here in the book of James, who, who were these people who received this letter? As James said in the very beginning, that this letter is going out to multiple communities of faith, multiple churches, believers who are scattered all over the known world. So some of them are in northern Israel. Some of them are in Asia Minor. Some of them were probably in North Africa. They're all over the Mediterranean, and they're living in communities of faith together. And for many of them, consider this for a moment, the church, their church, their community of faith, was probably the only community they had. Because, again, James says they were scattered away from their homes into all of these different places. And so if you were not a Roman citizen, if you were not wealthy, or if you didn't have family already living in the place to which you were scattered, for you, the church was probably the only community you had. And so it was vitally important that that community be a place that was safe, that it be a community where there was unity that was being experienced and the relationships were healthy. And as James talks throughout this letter about all these different kinds of very practical elements of the wisdom that comes from above, the wisdom that comes from God that as we, we put it into practice, we are, we are living out faithfully the Christian life. A lot of the wisdom from above that we find in James is about our relationship with God. And it's about walking obediently in that relationship. But a lot of the other wisdom we have, including where we start today in chapter 4, is, a, is wisdom from above about our relationship with each other. And what it looks like to live together, to do life together, to be in community, and to reflect the love of Christ, and the hope of Christ, and the unity of Christ, even if we get a little bit crossways with one another continuing on in the string of commands that we find in this part of james chapter 4 hopefully you'll remember back to last week james started just giving these commands one after another and they all began with and they all hang under the first command which is submit yourselves then to god and under that command submit yourselves then to god James has given lots of other direct instructions, imperative commands for those who would receive the letter. And the command we find at the beginning of verse 11 is about our relationships with each other. And James moves from the language where, as in the previous verses, talking about repentance, James addressed them with some pretty strong language. He called them adulterous people, from the standpoint of idolatry that might have been present in their lives. He called them sinners and said, if, if you're a sinner, you need to wash your hands and you need to purify your heart. James moves from the language of repentance back to the language of family. And he says at the beginning of verse 11, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Now, the word slander, as much as it was in the ancient world, very much today can be misunderstood, and it can be misapplied. Some will use the word slander to describe something that may not actually be slander. In the Greek that James uses here, the literal word simply means to speak against. So what he literally says is, brothers and sisters, do not speak against one another. 
This kind of slander could be spreading falsehood. That's a, that's a good definition of slander, spreading falsehood about someone. It could be making careless accusations. It could be being overly critical. Or it could just be, to use our language, bad-mouthing someone. James says, brothers and sisters, don't bad-mouth each other. And, and he gives a spiritual reason first for why we shouldn't do that. He says, because when, when you bad-mouth other people and when you judge them, you are overestimating the value of your own opinion so much so that you're putting your opinions, your thoughts, your ideas as being equal with God's law. And even if you don't think you're doing that, when you slander and when you judge your brothers and sisters, you're acting like it. You're acting like your opinions are divine opinions. Like your judgments are divine judgments. And James says, ultimately what you're doing is you're trying to set yourself on a throne that you were never meant to occupy. You're trying to set yourself on the throne of the only lawgiver and judge. The only one who is worthy of sitting on that throne is the Lord himself. And that seat was never meant for you, and it was never meant for me. So when you slander, when you judge, you're not just judging a person, but you're judging the law, and you're not keeping it. Instead, you're sitting in judgment upon it. So I'm not sure why the NIV chose the phrase not keeping it there at the end of verse 11. But what the word that James actually uses is the word we saw back in chapter 1. It's the word for being a doer. Remember when James said, be doers of the law and not hearers only? So what literally he says here is when you judge your brother or sister, when you slander them, you are not being a doer of the word. But rather than being a doer, you are being a judge of it. You know, I think sometimes we convince ourselves that when we're being judgmental or when we're slandering or, or bad-mouthing another person, that we're actually doing it because we're defending God's truth or we're defending God's word. And we convince ourselves be, because we don't like what that person is doing or we don't like what that person has said or we don't like that person's attitude or we don't like that person's opinion— that in speaking against them, in bad-mouthing them, we're standing on truth, and we're defending God's word. But you and I both know you can't defend God's truth and disobey God's truth at the same time. You can't be defending the word of God and also standing against it by slandering, by judging by putting yourself on a throne that you were never meant to occupy. And so, so James says for a very spiritual reason here, do not slander one another because by doing so, you place yourself upon God's seat of judgment. But James also knows that there is a practical reason inside the community of faith that we ought not slander each other and judge one another. We've talked about as we've gone through this letter how a lot of what James writes sounds like Hebrew wisdom. It sounds like the wisdom literature and the wise teachings that many of the recipients of this letter would have known because James told us at the beginning that most of them come from a Jewish background. And so you can find a lot of similar wise teaching in Hebrew wisdom literature that you find in the book of James. And I think with regard to this very practical reason why 
The community of faith as a whole suffers if we badmouth each other or if we judge each other. There's a great piece of teaching from Hebrew wisdom that illustrates it well. This is rabbinical teaching that comes from centuries ago, and it tells the story of a woman who came to her rabbi on a wintry day with a terrible sense of guilt. She had spread a very unkind story about another woman in town, and she had just learned that the story was not true. So she went to the rabbi and she said, what should I do? The rabbi told her she would do, have to do two things. First, he said, I want you to take the feathers from one of your pillows and I want you to place one feather on each doorstep in our little town, in our little village here. And after you've completed that task, come back and see me. So the woman did exactly that. She took a feather and she put a feather on every single doorstep in the village. And then she came back to the rabbi the following day and said, now what should I do? And he said, here's what you're to do next. I want you to now go back and gather up all of those feathers that you put out and bring them back to me. But rabbi, the woman protested, that is impossible because the wind has already scattered them far and wide. Indeed it has, the rabbi said. To gather up those feathers is as impossible as to take back the harsh words that you spoke. So you would do well to remember that before you speak in the future. We talked about this back in chapter 3. Another wise Hebrew teaching said that, that our words that do damage, our words that, that, that come from tongues that mean to do harm, they're like an arrow, they're not like a sword. A sword, when it's unsheathed, the person can decide to put the sword back in its sheath, but an arrow, when it's fired, like a harsh word, like a sinful word, that arrow takes its path, and once it's fired, it cannot return back to where it left. So once again, James reminds them, as followers of Jesus Christ, you would do well to remember that those who follow Jesus in obedience learn to keep a tight rein on their tongue. And those who do not can do great damage with their words. So when it comes to slander, when it comes to judging others, James says, hear this. There is only one lawgiver and judge. Only one who is able to save and destroy. But you... Who are you to judge your neighbor? Instead of judging your neighbor, we would do well, as James said in chapter 2, to remember the royal law, to love your neighbor as yourself. And whoever does that does well. And this is wisdom from above. And it relates to the way that we walk and live in relationships with each other and with others as a part of Christ's community of faith in the next part of james we get more wisdom from above but this time it's less about our relationships with each other and it's once again about our relationship with god and what it looks like to walk in obedience to him and i know that for for many of you who have studied the book of james these are probably some of your favorite verses that you find in the book of james where he talks about not boasting about tomorrow but instead submitting ourselves in every moment to the lord's will i'm going to turn things over to the illustrious seth spoo for a moment he's not just up here as security or as eye candy he is going to share with us about verses 13 through 15 and so seth come and share what the lord has laid on your heart seth preach the word thanks eric 
I'll pick up in verse 13 of chapter 4. Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. So James, the king of examples, he's giving us this example now of a man, of probably a merchant or a businessman who's um, making a plan to go to the city to make profit. Now, I want to make it clear that James here is not rebuking the fact that these businessmen are making plans or even desire to make profit. However, he is rebuking that they are uh, exhibiting worldly self-confidence, that they know what is right and that they can plan for themselves. They do not go to God with their plans. James also does not want to give us this misinterpretation that forbids Christians from any sort of planning or any sort of worrying. I'm sure many of you, as well as myself, has some sort of life insurance, car insurance, the savings that have been built up over time. That's not what James is saying. He's rebuking that planning and concern that we have that comes from our own human arrogance and the thought that we can plan for tragedies and hurdles. Jesus says in Luke 12, verse 15, he says, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. I like that he uses the word abundance. It's almost as Jesus knows that we will have possessions. He knows that we will gain stuff over time. But it's when we start to rely on them and, and gain a bunch over time that we start relying on those things instead of the Lord. In verse 14, James snaps these merchants, these businessmen back to reality and says, you do not know what will happen tomorrow. In Matthew 6, when Jesus gives his Sermon on the Mount, this is what he says in verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I like that James, he does this, the entire book that he's, he's written, he always goes back to Jesus' teachings, and he connects them to what he's talking about, and that's how you know that, that this is the word of the Lord, this is the word of God, and that we need to seek the kingdom first and the righteousness of God before we seek our own. After James says, you do not know what will happen tomorrow, he follows it up with a rhetorical question, what is your life? He calls us a mist, which can be translated as a wisp, a vapor, a breath, a puff of smoke. All this to say that our life is this quick, that in any moment, any given moment, it can end. That we rely so much on ourselves sometimes that we forget that tomorrow it could all be over. Things like illness, death, or the inevitable coming of Christ can shorten the time that we think we have. Verse 15, James writes, Instead, you ought to say, If it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. This is the happy note of the passage, and it should be happy. When our will is God's will, we have very, very little control over our lives. So in that, James is advising humility before God. Planning should be done provisionally, not set in stone, not concrete, unless it's from God. We must give our full and humble submission to Him in all that we do. I want to point back to the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus gives the, the um, construct of prayer. 
um, the example of prayer in, in verses 10 and 11 he says your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us today our daily bread his kingdom is already here and his will is already being done and the fact that we think that our will is greater than his in situations is just silly he will have his will be done regardless of you or me and if it's not done through me it'll be done through someone else I want to make a note that planning is not wrong. I do not want you to take that away, that planning is completely wrong. However, life is very uncertain, and we cannot even begin to understand what the future is going to hold. As I was praying and reflecting on what I wanted to say this morning, um, I thought it'd be best to share an example of what happens if you do not follow God's will. And so I, I want to use an example of my own life. When I was a junior in high school, I was 16 years old, there came a point in time where um, I was a rebellious teenager. As a pastor's kid, I just, I did not want to follow my dad's footsteps. And here I am now, but that's not important. I did not want to do that. So I chose my own will. I wanted to go into real estate. I wanted to flip houses. That was a desire of mine. That's what I wanted to do. And so I chose that path and I followed it for many months. Life was going great. I was happy. I had joy. I loved the plan that I had set out for myself, but life comes fast, and it hits hard. I had a friend, October of my junior year, he got in a very bad car accident, was in a coma for many months, and for days I would pray to God and I would ask him, you know, why? This kid is, is 17 years old, and he may not have a life anymore. And so for many days I asked, why? Why is this happening? And for a long time, I felt that God was silent. I felt that he was not there, and I cannot understand why these things were happening. Time passed on, and it became spring break, and my friend sadly passed away and went home to the Lord. And I was on my knees, and I, was, I again was praying to God, why do these things happen? And he said, you're asking the wrong question. You are praying the wrong prayer. Who am I? Who am I, Seth? I said, you are God. You have a greater plan than I have tried to set out for myself. That was eye-opening because my friend's life was cut so short that, you know, anyone can look at a teenager and say, oh, you have so much life left to live. And that's just not true. We can plan for a year in advance, five years in advance, 50 years in advance, but we don't even know what Monday will bring. Things can happen so quick in such a quick amount of time that planning is irrelevant and it's pointless compared to God's will. I do not want you to miss this. God's will is perfect. James says it in chapter 1, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above. It is from God. Do not think for a second that your life will be good because your will is better. You think your will is better. God's will is better. God's will is greater. It is perfect and it is pure. And if you think for a second that yours is better, you are wrong. Now is the time that you have to decide, am I going to do what I want to do or am I going to do what God wants me to do? He will always have your back and his will will be perfect for you. With that said, I'll hand it back over to Eric to finish out the rest of the passage. Thank you, Seth. Thank you for sharing your heart and sharing so personally with us. 
I, I think there's a reason why many of us like these verses. Partially it's because they are so practical and, and James actually gives us something to say with our mouths. And I hear people saying this all the time. They'll, 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 and this is a Christian tradition. It goes back for centuries. It's called James's condition where people will add James's condition to whatever they say. So tomorrow I'm planning to go to the grocery store if the Lord wills, if God wills. You can find this all the way back in the Latin phrase Deo Valente. Deo Valente, the ancient Christians would say all the time. I'm going to go to this place. I'm going to do this thing. This is going to be a prosperous year. Deo Valente, if the Lord wills it. For those of you who have ever been around Muslim people, those of you who have served with our Afghan community with us in the last couple of years. You've heard they have a similar phrase. They say, inshallah, all the time. Hey, I might see you tomorrow. Inshallah, if the Lord wills it. And I think we have to be careful. This is practical. James does give us something to say. But we have to be, pract we have to be careful that we don't make it so practical that we start just saying a phrase like that, almost as if it's a superstition, as opposed to remembering the deep meaning and the deep truth of what James is reminding us. What James is reminding us is that the Lord's will will be done. And when we make our plans, when we say we're going to go here or do that, when we leave God's will out of it, we forget, as James says, it sort of sounds like Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? What is your life? Who are you? What is your life? You are a mist that will be here and will be gone tomorrow. You are like a vapor that will disappear. It's not all that encouraging, but it's a sobering reminder that we need. And instead, we ought to remember at all times, and we ought to even say, if it's the Lord's will, then we will do this, then we will do that, then we will live as such. When we forget about the meaning, the truth behind what James has said. He says in verse 16, we turn into those who are boasting of arrogant schemes and all such boasting is evil. Again, going back to very solid Hebrew wisdom, Hebrew teaching, Proverbs 27.1, do not boast about tomorrow for you do not know what a day may bring. Or as Jeremiah wrote, this is what the Lord says, let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me. The question that Seth heard God telling him, who am I? That's the most important question. Let them boast that they know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight. These are my will, declares the Lord. Or as the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians 6, we've talked about throughout this letter how what James wrote is so consistent with the teaching and the writing of the other apostles. Paul said, May I never boast except in this, in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Or as we said in the beginning, everything James says here comes back to the very first command in this string of commands. It all hangs on this idea. Submit yourselves then to God. 
Thus, not just with your words, but with your lives, with our lives, we will say, if the Lord wills it, we will do it. If it's God's plan, it will be accomplished and we'll be a part of it. Submit yourselves then to God and all of these things come together underneath that command. The early Christians talking about this verse, there were a couple of different early Christians who wrote similar things. And so I combined what they wrote and put them together and I love the way this picture comes together. They were talking about James 4, 13 through 16. And they wrote this. Everything we do is part of a bigger plan. The plan of God's grace. Even when we make plans and see them through, we must remember it is only by the grace and blessing of God that they came to fruition. Life is not only fleeting, they said, it is empty without the Lord. Therefore, it is not what we want that matters, ultimately, but rather it's what God's will is that truly matters. Do not boast about tomorrow, but submit yourself in every moment to the Lord's will. And remember, as those early Christians said, everything we do is a part of God's bigger plan of grace, which means that for us to even be able to do that which is right is the result of God's grace working in through us. And James finishes here, this chapter in verse 17, by talking not only about the sin of commission, but sins of omission. That sin is not only doing that which is wrong, but it's also failing to do that which is right. We often think about sin as breaking the law and, and specifically doing things that God commanded us not to do. But James reminds us here that it's also a sin when we know the right thing to do, but we fail to do it. If anyone then knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. We cannot take refuge in the plea, one scholar said. I love this. We cannot take refuge in the plea, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do anything. That's exactly the point. Sometimes the sin, sometimes where we fall short, it's not because of what we've done, but it's because of what we have failed to do. And we've known the right thing. We've known the path that we should walk. We've known the thing we should say. We've known the attitude we should have. We've known the act of obedience that we should do, but we have failed to do it. And in that sin of omission, we have again broken the law of God. Sometimes we fail right. We fail to do right because of ignorance. But sometimes we fail to do right because we're tired. Sometimes we fail to do right because we've become numb. Or maybe we've become hardened of heart. Or maybe we are intentionally refusing to do what is right. We know well and good. We know better that we should be doing this thing or that thing. But we intentionally refuse to do it. And in any one of those cases, God's word makes clear here. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do but does not do it, it is sin for them. When I think about Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, so often this was the very thing that he confronted them about. Because you had among the, the, te the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, this group of people that quite literally would pull out a list 
and they would start checking off the boxes and they would trumpet it out on the street corners here are all the ways that we have obeyed god's law and we have not broken this command and we've not broken this command and we've not broken this command and yet what jesus confronts them about so often is not the laws they've broken but the laws of god that they've not followed and that they've not obeyed and that they've not done that which is right how often does jesus say to the teachers of the law you have failed because you have refused to show justice you failed because you've not been generous you failed because you have hatred and not love in your heart you failed because you've been judgmental and you've not shown grace you failed because you've not been demonstrating humility remember how wisdom and humility always go together but instead you are puffed up and you are prideful and in those ways you too pharisees teachers of the law you have sinned against god how many times did jesus say things like listen to what they say because most of what they say is good but do not do what they do because they are not living out what they say they believe in the same way yes we can sin against god by breaking his law but also we sin against god when we fail to do that which is right and jesus talked about this we have so many different scriptures we can connect to the practical teaching that we find in the book of james but jesus talked about this specifically in luke chapter 12 when describing what it looks like to be a faithful servant and what it looks like to have a very well-rounded walk of obedience where we're not only avoiding doing that which is wrong but when we are also completely committed to doing that which is right jesus says in luke 12 the servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows but the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows from everyone who has been given much much will be demanded and from the one who has been entrusted with much much more will be asked i would argue this morning that just by the very fact that we are sitting in a place like this that we can worship together in a place like this that we can open the word together that we can have so many different ways that God speaks to our heart and leads us as we worship and as we grow. I would argue that just by the fact that all of those things are true, we are those who have been given much. We have been entrusted with much. And to those who have been entrusted with much, much is expected. And to those who have been blessed abundantly with much like we have, much is demanded. What does it look like for us as followers of Jesus to be those who live well and do well and steward well all that has been entrusted to us? For the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. So I want to invite you to bow your heads with me as we close this morning. And here's how, here's how we're going to close things. Jesus said much more will be asked. So I want to ask us some questions as we prepare for a time of response where, where you will have an opportunity in a moment to literally take a step of obedience, to step out and come to Christ in response to his word. 
Before we even get to that point, I want to ask us these questions as a way to evoke a response even now, even right there where you're sitting. That, that as I ask us these questions, perhaps the Lord would speak directly to you. Here's the first question. How is your heart towards God today? How is your heart towards God? How is your heart towards others? Does your behavior reflect Christ's love and Christ's character? Does your behavior reflect Christ's love and his character? Are you submitted and surrendered to his will today? Submit yourselves then to God, Scripture says. Are you submitted and surrendered to his will today? And our last couple of questions. Do you recognize today that everything we do is part of a bigger plan, the plan of God's grace? And if you recognize that, would you remember today that it is not what you want that matters ultimately, but rather it is God's will that truly matters? Lord, I thank you that you have been so present with us today. From the very first moment of worship, reading the scripture and the songs that we've sang together, the notes that we've heard played, the words, and just the very fact that we have sensed that you are in the room with us. Lord, we thank you for being present with us. May we never take for granted that when we come together in worship, you join us. I pray today, Lord, that you would speak to every heart very clearly. And that with this one last opportunity as we sing again, as we worship you, as we, we sing and speak words of truth, Lord, would you speak to every heart and would you draw people to you, Lord, as we lift up your name. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.